1: a big part of my experience in those years. Mm-hmm. And it was obviously very impactful, but I, I had such a sense of the phenomenon mm-hmm. of life and death. Somebody is there and then they're not there. Mm-hmm. And so that had a big impact on me. It, that whole experience became very vivid, mm. you know, in my heart and my mind.
2: Welcome, welcome to the both of you. I'm delighted to have you both here. We've been doing this podcast for many years now, but Joseph, somehow you have evaded being a guest here. It's incredible.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Waiting for the right moment.
2: With both of you being here together, I thought it would just be nice to take some time to really talk about kind of the source of a lot of your story, because so many of our listeners out there, you know, are students of both of yours and have read your many books and sat in many retreats with you. And I think there's something really fruitful about looking at the beginning of both of your stories and kind of what drew you into this path and when those paths crossed for the first time. And as always, just visualizing the fashion of the time. (laughs) Uh (laughs) It's very good. So, Joseph, why don't we start with you? You grew up in the Catskills in New York. And yeah, tell us a little bit about what the feel of your childhood was and all of that.
1: Well, first, just to make a distinction between the two sides of the
2: Catskills.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So one side, like on the Woodstock side, is the uh, big artistic communities and and also some spiritual centers, Tibetan and Zen centers there. I grew up on the other side of the Catskills, (laughs) which was the Jewish resort area called the Borscht Belt. Love it. And my family had a summer resort. So I grew up in the resort. Mm-hmm. It was just open in the summer. It was a lot of cottages. Mm. So even to go back a little before that, I'll I'll go back pre-birth to, <laughs> to get the story started.
2: Right, love it.
1: So what I'm told is that my mother had a really difficult pregnancy
2: mm.
1: and I had to be induced like three weeks or a month early because she was so sick. Wow. And I'm also told that I basically screamed for three years Uh (laughs) uh, that was my entry into the world
2: so soft so gentle
1: (laughs) (laughs) I don't really remember any of that but that's Mm -hmm. that's the story told anyway (laughs) but there must have been something because up until I was about 11 I would have these periodic uh, temper tantrums Hmm mostly around family members if I felt my space invaded, my emotional space. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: Somehow I was very sensitive to that and kind of I would have these outbursts. Mm. And then when I was about 11 or so, I had just had one of these. And of course, it was a lot of suffering for me. It was a lot of suffering for everybody else around me. Mm -hmm. And I remember this one time, I think probably at 10 or 11, Just after one of these explosions, I said to myself, and this was before, obviously, before any knowledge of any kind of awareness, you know, Mm -hmm. practice, Mm -hmm. but I remember telling myself, at that time I was Joey, (laughs) Mm
3: -hmm.
1: Joey, count to 10, Mm -hmm. just count to 10 before you explode. Mm -hmm. And it was amazing. You know, it actually worked. Wow. And All of those outbursts just stopped from that time. So, kind of interesting to me now, looking back, that somehow I even knew to think of that, to think of doing that. You know, so maybe that, yeah, maybe there was some uh, remnant from less life or something. Yeah, but in a way, I think it was the first, very first beginning of my actually looking at my mind and doing something about it
2: yeah yeah I was curious to know if you because some children have a really rich internal life and you know very imaginative and I imagine kind of growing up where you did you were in nature a lot and if that was kind of part of your experience as a kid or
1: it was in know in an interesting way actually because as I said, my family had this summer resort yeah and it was quite big there about um I about 120 families, mm-hmm. you know, would come for the summer, but I was always delighted at Labor Day when they all left, <laughs> <laughs> because I loved the quiet. You know, so there was this whole resort with nobody living there except my family, mm-hmm. and even at a young age, I just loved the quiet. Yeah. You know, and and I would go walking in the woods and just enjoying nature. So again it it points to something that was in me you know that was appreciating appreciating the quiet and the solitude.
2: Well, and those are two huge extremes. Right. <laughs> to go from being smack in the middle of community and I would say a boisterous community as mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. maybe a good yes. way to describe it. <laughs> yes. And then to being pretty isolated there.
1: Yes. Yes. And I actually enjoyed what you call isolation or solitude or quiet. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. you know, I really felt the peace of that, even at that young age. Wow. Well, I think I'll just drop in another little biographical detail.
2: Yeah, please.
1: And that is that my father died when I was 12. Hmm. And in looking back now, I think I really repressed dealing with it emotionally until quite a few years later.
3: Mm.
1: But it was a big, obviously a big change in my whole family yeah. situation. And then within a couple of years, two other close <laughs> relatives also died. My grandfather and a young cousin who was killed in a car accident, who was just 19. So this was all between like 12 and you know, 17. Mm-hmm. So death was really a big part of my experience in those years. Mm-hmm. And it was obviously very impactful, but I I had such a sense of the phenomenon
3: mm-hmm.
1: of life and death. Somebody is there, and then they're not there.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And so that had a big impact on me. It, that whole experience became very vivid, mm. you know, in my heart in my mind.
2: Well, it's interesting, too, because some people can experience loss at that age and it doesn't necessarily have a big impact and Mm -hmm. others it will really shape the rest of your life so did you have aside from that awareness of just the possibility and the reality of it what was the emotional component was that something you felt at that time or was that part of what was pushed down
1: it was pushed down yeah for the most part yeah, I didn't so much feel it on the emotional mm-hmm. level at that mm-hmm. time. It was more it tuned into that part of my mind which has always been, I don't know for want of a better word, philosophical minded, you know, so it was kind of just being with the experience as as I just said of just okay, what is what is death really about? <laughs> Mm-hmm. You know, so it was. It was more on that level at that time.
3: Yeah.
1: And then it's actually interesting. It wasn't until I went into the Peace Corps and started smoking some grass in the Peace Corps for the first time.
3: <laughs>
1: so that was my my introduction. Love it. <laughs> introduction to that whole realm.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's when all of this came up. Mm-hmm. You know, on a, on a more emotional level.
3: Mm-hmm. You
1: know, I could feel a, kind of the the absence
2: yeah.
1: that my father's right. death had created. So it just took some time for me to yeah. be able, I guess, to open to that.
2: Do you think that you would have been interested in studying philosophy if those losses hadn't happened to you at that time?
1: Yeah, I do. I think that frame of mind is baked into me <laughs> for whatever reason.
3: Yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, <laughs> yeah, at one point. And, and, and in It both became a, in a way, a motivating force for getting into the practice. Mm -hmm. But in my mind, at certain times, it's also a hindrance to the practice. (laughs) Because uh, uh, one teacher once told me after a month long retreat, you know, trying to develop more concentration, Mm -hmm. he said, Joseph, you have too much investigation. Mm-hmm. You know, so the the investigative mind is good in terms of exploring, and the wisdom aspect. Yeah. Out of balance, it can it can be a hindrance actually to the development of more stillness.
2: Right. Yeah.
1: But anyway, that's that's how my mind is. Yeah. So I work with it.
2: Well, before we go on to your time at Columbia, Sharon, I'm curious to hear from you because you also experienced a lot of loss at a young age and, and hearing Joseph's sharing here, I'm just curious kind of if you felt um, any similarities with, with your experiences of loss and change at young ages.
4: Uh, Sure. I mean, I'm trying to think, let's see, let's calculate from 1971, which is the year I met Joseph, you know, um, January of nineteen seventy-one. was a good many years. So, and of course, I knew his history, and so I mean there there are many factors. You know, he's a little bit older than I am, even. So there there was early loss, but there's also just the conditioning of the culture of the time.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: I think of Joseph's mother as an example of a woman caught in the kind of nature of the time where it was more difficult to manifest, even if you were very bright and very accomplished and Everything that meant, and you know what it meant to go to India at that time, and kind of break free of the traditions of one's childhood and and all of that. So yeah, I think we we have a lot of in common in that way.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. You start heading towards New York City, Joseph, mm-hmm. and uh, tell me what went into that calling mm-hmm. for you.
1: Right. Well. Even though I enjoyed, you know, the, the solitude of when all the summer people left, Yeah. <laughs> by the end of high school, this was a very small town. You know, after the summer folks left, yeah, it was a little village of a thousand people and I was ready for some ex- excitement. Yeah. I remember sitting around with friends in high school, you know, Saturday night, the loop of conversation was, well, what are we going to do? Mm-hmm. And of course there was nothing to do. <laughs> So by the time I graduated, the the thought of going to New York was quite exciting, and I I was really happy to go to Columbia. Yeah, and that's really what drew me there. And I also got a big scholarship there, so that helped. Yeah, that helped as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then at Columbia, was really pursuing that philosophical inclination Mm -hmm. that I had. And I remember this was as a freshman in college. I don't know what prompted. This questioning in my mind, but there was about a two week period when I was consumed with the question Does God exist? Mm
3: -hmm.
1: And it was really like an overarching, consuming question. It's just all I was thinking about for that short period of time. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Unfortunately, I can't remember (laughs) how I resolved it.
2: Yeah, what did you decide?
1: Right. It's kind of a shame that I can't remember. (laughs) However, for some reason, the question seemed to fade away. Yeah. You know, but it does point to something that there was something in me that was just drawn. Yeah. And then as a sophomore, I was taking a course in Eastern philosophy, Mm
3: -hmm.
1: and we were reading the Bhagavad Gita. And again, this is a time, this is, so when I was a sophomore, that was in 1962.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: I didn't know anything about the East or Eastern philosophy or Buddhism, and I didn't know anything, you know, about any of that. Yeah, but we were reading the Bhagavad Gita, and there was one line in it that, for some reason, so completely resonated with me, and was kind of out of the blue, you know, because I had no background for it at all.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: But the line said act without attachment to the fruit of the action. Act without attachment to the result. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, somehow, somehow I understood it on some level. You know. And again, it's all pointing to my experience over the years of there being something in me that kept pushing me mm-hmm. towards, we could say towards the East or towards mm-hmm. the Dharma, yeah and so there are these little moments all along the way that kind of reveal that inner yeah that inner push,
2: well, and I think that kind of inner calling or longing, there's so many different words for it uh is so mysterious, yeah. and I love hearing about it because it's such a kind of a universal part of being a person, whether what we're being drawn to of course, is is always so different, but and I think for both of you it's always really struck me that you followed that thread across the world, really, and into a totally different culture, which, Mm. you know, is a pretty big deal. And I feel like that line from the Gita is like the essence, the (laughs) essence teaching of the Gita. So it's it's pretty remarkable that that it awakens something in you and Had you heard anything like that before? Was it, I mean. Never. Yeah.
1: (laughs) It was totally new. (laughs) Yeah. Somehow the the Bhagavad Gita was not in my house as I grew up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 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 Uh Uh-huh.
2: So were there any other philosophers that you felt a big connection to?
1: Oh, yeah. 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 Yeah, there was one big one. Do tell, uh, which also relates to my introduction to Buddhism. Oh, good. So when I was a junior, I took this very small seminar, small because very few people were interested in it, (laughs) on the the philosophy of Spinoza. Uh huh. And Spinoza is not an easy read.
3: Yeah.
1: However, he's really very Buddhist his philosophy, which I didn't know at the time, but in looking back now, I can see why I was drawn to it because basically his whole philosophy Mm -hmm. is non-theistic. So I got very immersed in Spinoza and studying. And then when I went into the Peace Corps and first was getting introduced to Buddhism and going to some, you know, visiting with some monks, I remember one time, the first time, I went. I went with a copy of Spinoza in hand. You know, and I was gonna try to explain Spinoza to these Buddhist monks. Love it. But once I heard the teachings, I realized I don't really have to do this. I can just, I can just enter into Buddha Dharma. That's
2: so good. And I'm curious, also, just being in New York City in the '60s, if that was also impactful for you. I mean, I think going from like country to city is always a big thing. But New York was such a cultural center, especially at that time. And so I'm curious if that was part of what was happening for you, or if you were just more immersed in your studies and and doing that.
1: Well, this was before, I mean, I graduated in January of 65 I mean, I, by that time I was very anxious to get out of school and just to go and see the world, and the Peace Corps uh, provided an opportunity to do that. But in those years, like sixty-one through sixty-four, the real social activism, mm-hmm. you know, of civil rights, the movements were just beginning at that time, and so I was not—I was really not tuned into that when I was there, and so my experience of New York. Other than you know my studies
3: mm-hmm.
1: was really the cultural aspect of New York, yeah, you know of going to museums and theaters and film, and at that time that mm-hmm. was very inspiring to me as well it's the art in some way touched that same place of inner exploration mm-hmm. you know it it was very impactful for me, mm-hmm. in fact. <laughs> For quite a while, uh, my aspiration was really to become a film director. Uh (laughs) But, you know, I just remember going, you know, in these New York art films and Uh the aesthetics of it and the beauty of it just really inspired me. And so it was more Uh that part of being in New York. But by the time I graduated, I was definitely also ready. I I just wanted to get out and see the world. And the Peace Corps was just a great opportunity for that.
2: I love hearing that you wanted to become a a film director, because you're someone that I think of as having just an incredibly refined aesthetic, which is maybe publicly as a teacher, something you're not known for as much, but everything around your space is is so beautifully curated and whether it's form or function. So I love hearing the history of that a little bit.
1: Right. Yeah, that part is still very important yeah just in mm-hmm. in my way of being mm-hmm. yeah just the aesthetic dimension mm-hmm. of life and that's also connected not only visual you know but in poetry and yeah. in so many arenas the opening that can come from that it's, i find really uh, fulfilling
2: yeah and it's interesting to hear that you could access kind of a similar place inside yourself from watching an art film as reading the Gita, it sounds like, open the same door. and you- Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah, yes.
2: So before we get to the next chapter of your adventure, I want to hear a little from you, Sharon, about, because at this same time, you're also in New York City, um, you're a few years younger than Joseph, so just a couple. Quite a few years <laughs> younger. <laughs> A few years younger. <laughs> Eight years younger. Eight. <laughs> and so you're kind of having some parallel time where you're both living different lives in New York City. And right. Sharon, I'm hoping that you'll fill us in on your side of things.
4: I had a very difficult, traumatic childhood, as many people know from reading stuff I've written or listening to me talk. And with a lot of disruption and a lot of, confusion and i think like for many people you know that's the case and and like for many people it was a family where none of this was ever really spoken about that clearly and it was only after when i was in college and i was seeing things with a little more clarity and a little more perspective that i, I began saying that's a weird thing you know like mm-hmm. why why did they say that was accidental when you know or that's strange or And then especially, it all kind of coalesced in my sophomore year in college in the Asian philosophy course that I was taking. And it was really pretty well to fulfill this philosophy requirement that I took it. And I chose that one. And in the section on Buddhism, which was really predominant in the class, hearing the Buddha talk about the suffering in life, and it was like this light went on. And I thought, oh, you know, that was for me a moment of complete inclusion it wasn't a moment of it being depressing or
3: mm-hmm.
4: or scary or it was like oh it's not just me you know i belong it's like this is a part of life and that was the first really important thing that happened in that class and the second was it was really in that context that i heard about the practices of meditation and it was you know tremendous it was like there are practices you can do there are methods you can undertake And if you practice them, you'll be a lot happier. So I was going to college in Buffalo, New York, and I looked around Buffalo, and I didn't see it anywhere. It was 1970 or even 69 at that point. And I created an independent study project and said I want to go to India and study meditation, and they accepted it. So off I went.
2: Well, and one of the things that I've also heard you say that folks might not know is that you had the hope of maybe being a playwright at that young age? I think
4: when I was a child, if somebody said, um, what do you want to be when you grow up? Yeah. It was certainly a period when I, I said, I want to be a playwright. I, I must've read a book or something about somebody who was a playwright. Yeah. You know, I wanted to be a, a writer of some kind. Sometimes it was a playwright, sometimes it was a journalist.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: I read a book on the first woman journalist. I can't remember her name. Um everything was sort of in that light. I, I had no confidence that
2: I could ever actually do it, but that—that mm-hmm. um, that is true. It's interesting to me that you both had that instinct in, in different ways, but wanting to tell stories and really in a creative medium. And and then we're drawn on a path that you both write a lot and are very creative people. So <laughs> I love that it found a form and that it both kind of existed and in a different dream when you were younger. So I'd love to hear a little bit about Sharon, when you talk about dreaming up going to India. I mean, that's such a huge step. And the, these days, it's so normal. We live in such a global world where you get on Google Maps and see what <laughs> a village halfway around the world looks like. But that was really not what so many people did at that time and yeah, what that energy was about for you to go so far and why India. Yeah. I,
4: I think I did kind of think explicitly that I would find more there. I had, I was so ignorant. I didn't realize that India hadn't been a Buddhist country in like thousands of years, you know, but <laughs> I thought I would find more and I thought it would be really alive and I thought I'd find a teacher. So I had a very specific kind of goal which was to learn the practicalities of it Mm -hmm. I wasn't really interested you know in the philosophy so much or in comparative religion I really wanted to learn the how-to and so I set out with that goal and it's a mystery I don't know how I ever went you know it was like (laughs) really bizarre and uh yeah was a wave though it wasn't just me and yeah uh certainly it was there was a movement afoot you know happening and I must have heard about somebody going or group going there was a small group from the university going and it was it was just what had to happen and so step by step yeah yeah but i i don't think i'd been on an airplane uh twice at that point you know once to miami with some family and back Mm -hmm. to new york i'd never even been to california and so it was not just the trip in terms of flying it was you know flying to europe and then going overland to Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, to India. And uh, so all of a sudden, everything was outrageous and completely different and scary. and And then there I was in India.
2: Well, and also, I think of that time, and I also think of a lot of the just cultural limitations that based on gender that like, even when I was in my twenties and traveling around, I would constantly hear like, Oh, it's not safe for you to travel as a woman in different Mm -hmm. parts of the world. And what were your thoughts on that? Well, I wasn't alone for one thing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was with a
4: small group of friends and I think it wasn't safe, you know, and, (laughs) and uh, it, it just wasn't, I mean, many women did it, you know, and yeah, and we're fine. But, You know, I'd never been in a culture before where a man could just like grab your body in the street and it was Mm. normalized and, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and, uh, getting to India actually felt like a big relief in a lot of ways because it was,
3: Mm.
4: it wasn't that, you know? Yeah. And, you know, for a time, it's just, everything was just so different and, and, uh, the food and the culture and the people and Mm -hmm. conversation and but I I loved India and uh, felt like through the years since then that I had kind of erased a sort of psychological distance that I could go for two weeks it would be okay Mm -hmm. because I would feel at home Mm -hmm. once I got there. Mm -hmm.
2: Was it surprising to you to feel at home in a culture that was just so different?
4: Well, sure. I mean, it, you know, I wasn't like, oh, thank goodness I'm home completely. I was also really scared, you know, and it was, yeah, it was very intense, but in, in the process of kind of landing there and especially once I began practicing, I, I really felt I, I could find a home there.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: I mean, home is such a nuanced thing, but I have a really distinct memory of my first trip to India and walking off the plane and smelling the air and I just felt something I'd never felt before in my life. And mm-hmm. and a feeling of home is probably the best way I could describe it. But what a kind of strange thing to have an experience like that in a place that is otherwise just so different and that it's very layered, of course. Yeah, and it takes time.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Was there ever a point when you just thought, like, I don't like this, I want to go home? <laughs> No. I want to go back to no. New York. <laughs> no. Love that. Yeah. So why don't we loop back to you, Joseph, and kind of what brought you first to Asia and the Peace Corps and mm-hmm. and uh, yeah. your path mm-hmm. <laughs> crossing with Sharon's.
1: Yeah. So as I said, by the time of my junior year in college, I was ready to escape academia and, as I say, explore the world. And fortunately, that was just the year, so this was in 64, I guess, that the Peace Corps was started, maybe 63. And one of the first trainings was held at Barnard, which is part of Colombia. Mm-hmm. So I met a group of Peace Corps volunteers being trained to go overseas. I just happened to meet them in the subway. I think I was going to see one of those art films, <laughs> and we started talking and it was meeting them and just hearing about the pisco, which i I really didn't know anything about. I think that's that provided the uh the idea of a way to go mm-hmm. you know overseas and so I got very excited by that. I actually applied to go to East Africa because I had some romantic notion mm-hmm. of uh I don't know, climbing Mount Kilimanjaro or whatever. (laughs) But fortunately, they sent me to Thailand instead, Mm -hmm. which was very fortunate indeed, because as a Peace Corps volunteer, I was teaching English right in a school in Bangkok Mm -hmm. and going to some of the uh, discussion groups. (laughs) Uh, Some of the monks that I wanted to, as I said before, uh, talk to about Spinoza. And... (laughs) Yeah, so I would go to these discussion groups. They were, they were held at that time at the Marble Temple, which was just down the street from where my school was. So it's a famous temple in Thailand, and there were two monks teaching Westerners. One was an English monk, and one was an Indian monk, but in Bangkok. But I was still you know, very much in my philosophical mind, mm-hmm. and uh, this is a story I've told very often. I would ask so many questions in these groups that people stopped coming. You know, because I was so annoying, and I think we've all been in groups like that with people like that. Uh, so one of the monks finally, out of desperation, I think said, "Why don't you try meditating?" And it was the first. Unlike Sharon, I didn't. I hadn't even really heard of meditation. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't know anything about it. Yeah. Uh, so he just explained, you know, the basic, you know, sit down and watch your breath. So I go back, I you know, gather some paraphernalia for sitting and whatever, and I set my alarm clock for five minutes. because <laughs> I didn't want to sit too long.
3: <laughs>
1: but it was quite amazing because something quite important happened in those first five minutes. And it wasn't any great enlightenment experience, but I saw just, just in those few minutes – Uh, that there was a way to look into the mind as well as looking out through it Mm -hmm. and that there was a methodology for doing that. Mm -hmm. And that to me was just so exciting and revelatory and I got totally inspired by it. And I got so enthusiastic that I started inviting some of my friends over to watch me meditate. (laughs) (laughs) They didn't come back too often. (laughs) Of course yeah. I have since made a career of inviting people <laughs> to watch me meditate and to meditate along with me so uh, maybe I was onto something
2: That's hilarious <laughs>
1: but that was the, that was the beginning Yeah and I just it was just complete complete resonance mm. from the beginning you know I knew mm-hmm. I knew that this was what I wanted to do and yeah when I finished the peace corps and came back to the states I had had one really quite transformative experience just at the end of my Peace Corps days, mm-hmm. where somebody was reading from a Tibetan text, and my mind was really concentrated, and something profound opened up mm-hmm. in listening to that mm-hmm. uh, particular text so Then, when I went back to the states, I wanted to further explore it but I really didn't know what I was doing. I didn't have enough experience in meditation at that point. Mm-hmm. And I realized I needed a teacher. And that's when I thought to go back to Asia to look for a teacher. And friends had been in India studying with some Tibetan teachers. So I thought, oh, I'll stop in India. I thought I might go back to Thailand. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I stopped in India and went around to a few different places, couldn't really connect with anybody And here's another story just indicating there are some strange forces at work in our lives. So I was in New Delhi after having traveled around, not finding anyone that I connected with, and thought, okay, I'm going to just go back to Thailand. And I was walking to the airline office. I was in New Delhi, and I was walking to the airline office to get my ticket. And just all of a sudden, there was some force that stopped me from taking a step forward. Mm. And this was completely unusual and out of character for me. I'm not the kind of person that has different special, (laughs) you know, exotic experiences. (laughs) So this just came out of the blue. Mm. I couldn't, I couldn't move forward. Mm. And I had no idea what was going on. So I just (laughs) turned around and went back to where I was staying And then I had the thought, somebody had given me an acid trip. I thought, well, maybe I'll go to Benares, you know, and just take the acid on, (laughs) you know, near the Ganges or something. Mm
3: -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay,
1: so I couldn't go to Thailand. I couldn't make it to the airline office. Got on the train to go to Benares. And I was there for a few days. I didn't take the acid there. I'm going back to the train thinking, I'll go back to Delhi and I'll just go on to Thailand. But in the rickshaw... Going to the train station, again, this thought just popped into my mind. Oh, instead of going back to Delhi, why don't you go to Bodh Gaya, which is where the Buddha was enlightened, and sit under the Bodhi tree and take the acid there? <laughs>
2: yeah, you know, I thought that would be a
1: that would be a really great experience.
2: Amazing.
1: So instead of turning right to Nunelli, I turned left mm-hmm. to Bodh Gaya. Wow. And I ended up there and Looking for a place to stay, I ended up at what is called the Burmese Vihara, mm-hmm. which was originally built for Burmese pilgrims, but Burma in those days was closed. So it was mostly where the few Westerners, and there were very few at that time, mm-hmm. would stay in Bodh Gaya. So I went there and I met a few Danish people who were studying with Muninjiji.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And he was my first teacher. And so... As soon as I connected with them, I went with them to meet Mm Muninja, and it was just immediate. I knew that's exactly what I had come for.
3: Mm.
1: And he he had said something in the very beginning that was just so seductive to me. He said, if you want to understand your mind, sit down and observe it. Mm. And that was all. You know there was no there was no ritual, there was no ceremony, there was nothing to join. Mm-hmm. It was just that straight, direct looking into the nature of the mind, mm-hmm. of course with the instructions for how to do it and as soon as I just heard basically the teachings of mindfulness mm-hmm. you know and and how to observe the mind and body, I knew I was home it was It was exactly what I was looking for, and the rest is history. <laughs>
2: It's interesting that that invitation from him was so seductive for you because I know a lot of people who would hear that and not think twice about it are just like, oh no, that's, right. <laughs> I don't want to know yeah. more there.
1: <laughs> uh huh. There. So. Or I'm more drawn maybe to the outer form of it.
2: Mm-hmm. But yeah.
1: Munindra was really formless in many ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that appealed to me. Yeah.
2: yeah, And so what year was that that you met him?
1: That was in 1967. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I was there. So I was in India for most of the next seven years. I came back a few times to uh, make some money, you know, and then mm-hmm. I would go back. So most of the next seven years with a few mm. short intervals back in the States. Yeah, I was in India in practicing. And that's, of course, where I met Sharon in Boy Gaya in 1970. 70, Sharon, or 71?
2: 71. Uh-huh, yeah. 71. So I keep hearing the phrase, the pretense of accident, (laughs) that Sharon, I've heard you mention so many times, but it also kind of sounds in a way like what was at play with Joseph's process. But Sharon, will you tell us your wonderful pretense of accident story? Sure. I I was still in
4: Buffalo just getting ready to go. I don't know, It's maybe like three or four days before I and a small group of friends were leaving for India. And somebody arranged what I think was Trungpa Rinpoche's first North American tour. And they brought him to Buffalo and he gave a lecture, not at the university that I was going to, but at a nearby college. And so I went and and, um, then they asked for written questions. And so I wrote out the question basically saying, I'm leaving in a few days for India to study Buddhist meditation and I don't know exactly where to go. Can you give me some advice? And So he had this big pile of questions in front of him and he picked it out of the pile and read it out loud and then he was silent for a moment and then he said, I think you had perhaps best follow the pretense of accident. (laughs) And that was it. It was like no addresses, no... Andy monastery guidebook and I think you had perhaps best follow the pretense of accident. And, and that was it. And in fact, it kind of worked out just like that. I went to India with that very distinct yearning to learn how to do it. You know, how to mm-hmm. have the practicalities of instruction and, and guidance and support in doing a practice. And
3: mm-hmm.
4: I went, to Dharmsala to begin with because i heard the dalai lama was living there and he was a buddhist and in fact there were of course very great lamas around him and some meditation classes but it was one of those situations where things just didn't work like i'd go to the meditation class and they'd say oh the lama's gone to the dentist at the other end of india he'll be back in two weeks you know <laughs> things like that the translator wasn't there and Mm-hmm. And it was actually in Dharamsala in a Tibetan restaurant that I overheard a conversation where these people were saying that there was going to be an international Hatha yoga conference in New Delhi. And, and I thought, oh, you know, I'll go there and that's where I'll find a teacher. And so I went there and that I'm sure you've heard me say, you know, it was a really dismal experience where <laughs> the low point was when these yogis and swamis were, pushing and shoving against each other to be the first to grab the mic and speak. And mm-hmm. I was just thinking, it's never going to work. And for some reason, and I just asked him, you know, why are we doing that? Dan Goleman, uh, who at the time was a graduate student at Harvard and studying meditation as part of his psychology program was giving a talk at that, at that conference. And, mm-hmm. and he mentioned at the end of the talk that he was on his way to this town called Bodh Gaya which is the town that's grown up around the descendant of the tree. They say the Buddha was sitting under when he became enlightened and he was going to do this intensive 10 day meditation retreat, which was, and it's like he described my, my deepest yearning, very practical, like about how to do it. And, and I thought, that's it. That's what I want. And so off I went, and not just me. I think, I don't know, Joseph with like 40 or 50 of us that showed up. <laughs> having been inspired by Dan, who's kind of like the Pied Piper mm-hmm. of it all. Wow. And there was Joseph who'd been there, what, it sounds like three, four years, very peacefully.
1: <laughs> yes. And then the mobs came.
2: The mobs came. I'm, I'm curious at that retreat, the first that you sat together, which was your first one, Sharon, and I'm curious how many Westerners it was, just kind of what that scene was like. Maybe there was one Indian. I don't know,
4: like mm-hmm. that that particular <laughs> time. And much later, of course, there was it was more a mixture of you know all kinds of people, but from all kinds of places. But I think it was really the massive amount of people were, were from the West. Mm-hmm. The Vietnam War was still going on. There were some people there who were in R and lot of travelers. Goenka had just left Burma, which was very restrictive. You know, he had to get like permission to leave sort of paperwork and his mother was living in India and was, was kind of ill for a while although she recovered. And mm-hmm. that's how he got out. And his English was, you know, basic in, in some ways. Um, and we were grateful for it, but mm-hmm. you know, he would say things like Ramdas was there as a student. who would sometimes correct Goenka who would say things like, you have to clean up your dirty mind and, none of talking about purification or you know something else, so um, but it was extraordinary I mean it was, uh, it was where I met Joseph and Christian Das and so many of my really good friends, and we formed this kind of incredible community. It wasn't a completely silent experience, there were silent days silent periods and mm-hmm. um and just the the actual discovery, I think back I'm so amused at like. How thrilling it was to say! I felt this throbbing in my upper lip, or something you know, like, <laughs> in my breath, and it was actually thrilling. And mm-hmm. and there was so much learning, and it was kind of amazing.
2: Mm. One of the things that always really strikes me is that you went from like zero to a hundred yeah. because those retreats are hardcore, and I mean our bodies are not used to doing anything for that many hours, let alone like sitting on the floor. And I feel like I've heard you say that the first time you sort of encountered Joseph was leaning on a bookshelf. That was like a kind of a desperate attempt to get some back support (laughs) for your very sore body. And it had like a little label on it that was like donation from Joseph Goldstein. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's true.
4: We weren't allowed to sit on chairs and there were no zafus, there were no Zabutons, tons, you know flat cushions and mm-hmm. we would like roll up our sleeping bags and yeah you know sit on them and like mm-hmm. and then unroll them at night to sleep on the floor
2: yeah.
4: and uh well of Chris was quite a bit younger then so it was it was different in that way but um yeah, and fine, but it was no it was it was very tough, and Goenka as a kind of style of practice, doesn't have walking meditation, Mm -hmm. unlike some other schools of mindfulness. And so physically it was, it was very hard. It was just so exhilarating. Mm
2: -hmm. I'm curious because I've heard you speak just how exhilarating it was to kind of find this thing you had been seeking. But at the same time, I imagine you were also encountering yourself in a much fuller way than you ever had. So I'm curious if you were surprised by what you found as you looked in at yourself in that way. Yeah,
4: well, I I mean, I've told that story too, you know, and and then I once marched up to Goenka and I looked at him and I said, I never used to be an angry person before I started meditating, thereby laying blame exactly where I felt it belonged, which was on him. And, (laughs) of course, i had been hugely angry, but I hadn't seen it. So there was a lot of that, you know, there was Mm – tremendous. It was the first time not even just that I'd meditated, but that I, I practiced any real introspection. You know, I'd never been in therapy and
3: mm-hmm.
4: I was young. I was eighteen at this point and
3: mm-hmm.
4: you know, it was it was very intense. But people asked me when I knew, like in a way without a doubt, that there was something viable there for me. Mm-hmm. Or something important there for me that and I said from the first moment, I just knew. Mm-hmm. That there's truth here and it's for me. And mm-hmm. so everything was in that context. Plus he was fun. You know, he was chanting, he was hanging out, answering questions. It was all, mm-hmm. it was like a beautiful experience. It felt like a journey, mm-hmm. you know, it was ceremonial. Um, mm-hmm. There was a beginning to the retreat. There was, it was also very structured, which I realized I needed. Like one of the things about Menindra, who was also there, was that he was very unstructured, and that was something I needed much later. I needed that kind of freedom and Mm
3: -hmm.
4: flexibility, you know, whereas before the retreat started, we were all staying in this Burmese-like temple, and somebody asked, I overheard somebody asking Menindra, saying, I want to go to town and get some chai. And town at that time was, like, tiny. It was, like, two tailor shops, I think, and the (laughs) tree, of course, in the temple. Mm-hmm. built behind it and a few few temples, you know, a Chinese temple and a Thai temple. And so Minindra said to him, oh, oh you can go to town, just go mindfully. And I thought, I had no idea what that meant. Mm-hmm. And then Goenka came along and he locked the gate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so you couldn't leave. You had to climb over the gate to leave.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: Mm-hmm. And people would come and like sell cookies through the gate, but <laughs> couldn't get out. And I realized that's what I needed in the beginning. I needed Yeah, you know, I needed the structure. I needed the security of this is when this is how you do it, and you do just this. And later on, it was it was a very different story. But you know, it was kind of a perfect scene for me in the beginning.
2: Well, and so remarkable that the pretense of accident, as it were, (laughs) landed you in a a lineage and with a teacher that that you really flourished in in that way. Because you know, that is so often not the case where someone is seeking and they have to try a lot of things that that don't work before they find the one that yeah that they're going to stay with so yeah and i'm curious you know because you spoke before about you were really drawn to the practice and less of the philosophy less of let's say studying the philosophy and i'm i'm curious if that was something that kind of remained for a time with you or if as you began to practice, you became more interested in, in those other aspects of it. I don't know that I ever became so
4: much interested in the philosophy, I guess you could call it that, but in part of that I was studying with Sadhu Pandita, who was a Burmese monk we brought to IMS in 1984. And, um, and even before that, certainly with Meninger, but it was, it was partly a fascination with the language Mm -hmm. like the word for mindfulness in Pali, the language of the original Buddhist text is sati, Mm -hmm. and it means many different things and exploring those different meanings. And then there's a phrase, satipatthana, there's a famous sutta, there's a famous uh, scripture, Mm -hmm. uh, the Satipatthana Sutta, which has the four foundations of mindfulness. And Upandita gave, I don't know, like innumerable lectures on pa in the satipat on a, I mean, like another night, really? Same same little, you know, two syllables, like really? But there's so much there. And uh, Mm -hmm. for a while we tried to study Pali and it's not a living language. So the only thing you can, you can't learn, like I want to go buy a sandwich. It has to be like, and the Buddha entered the grove and he said this and that, you know, and it just, what they say the Buddha said about study is that it broadens your path. And I realized, Mm -hmm. yeah, at that point, it was before Upandita, but really deepened with Upandita that it is easy to get very attached to one's own method or feel a kind of narrowness, like it's got to be this way. And when you study more, things just broaden. Mm. And you realize, oh, it's not the method. It's because the method does something. And they probably a million other ways of doing the same thing. You know what are they? And it it just really opens
2: up. Mm. I'm also curious because at that time there wasn't, you know, any kind of path outside of kind of what existed in those eastern traditions of what practice looked like in one's life and in those traditions you have either renunciates who live that life full time or householders who maybe have a practice, but there certainly were no careers as meditation teachers at that time. So did you have a sense of at all kind of where you felt meditation was going to fit in, in your life in that, you know, that early period of practice?
4: No, not, not exactly that, you know, because you know, as I got more deeply into it, I I kind of forgot any other life, you know. I, I wasn't planning on coming back to the States to live and mm-hmm. and um, mm-hmm. never imagined that I would, you know, at a certain point. And, mm-hmm. in fact, even when I came back in 1974, it, it was kind of within that idea that, oh, you know, this is for now, but I'm going to end up back in India. Mm-hmm for the rest of my life, and and that's going to be it. So it it sort of became the center of my life. I just didn't think it was going to be in the particular way that it ended up being.
2: Yeah, yeah. And so tell me, Sharon, about the first time you and Joseph connected or that you became aware of him as more than just a name on the bookshelf, your back benefactor.
4: yeah because uh, this is my first retreat still, and uh because um they were not completely silent, but there were silent days. It was I don't know what day of the retreat it was, but I was enormously frustrated and, with myself, and I couldn't keep my attention on the breath going. starts his retreats with several days of settling your attention on the breath at the nostrils that's his method and and then moving to what these days we tend to call body scan. Mm-hmm. And I just couldn't concentrate. And, and I was so distracted and so much was coming up. And I was furious at myself. And, and uh, I said something to myself, this is just before lunch, that if your mind, you know, which is how I address myself, if your mind doesn't settle down, you should just bang your head against the wall. And fortunately for me, the lunch bell rang just then. So <laughs> I went down, stood on the lunch line and, there was a conversation going on behind me and somebody said to this man, how was your morning? And he said in the lightest possible tone, like totally at ease with himself. Oh, you know, I couldn't concentrate at all, but it will probably be better this afternoon. And I was horrified. I thought he doesn't understand, like he hmm. could really get enlightened doing this stuff. Why doesn't he take it seriously? He's just like, <laughs> it's just not sincere. Like what's wrong with him? And that of course was Joseph and, what he was expressing was not his insincerity. It was the fact that he'd been practicing for four years mm-hmm. and I've been practicing for four days. And mm-hmm. and that was the difference. He had a kind of equanimity and had been through a lot more and seeing things go up and down and, mm-hmm. and had a lot more
2: understanding. And so that was Joseph Goldstein.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: I love that. And Joseph, I'm curious just to hear your side of it because you had been practicing for a while and, Sounds like there was quite an influx of of Westerners coming in.
1: Yes. <laughs> so first to say, I mean, in in this way, Sharon and I kind of uh, needed different things. Mm-hmm. So when I first went, first there were just very few people. They were like, if there were ten people at the Burmese Vihara, it was a lot, mm-hmm. you know. So mm-hmm. there was still very few people there. And Munindra, as Sharon said, he didn't teach courses. We would just sit, you know, create our own schedule and then just go see him once a day for a kind of interview report on our meditation. And I loved that formlessness. Mm -hmm. You know, it just suited me and suited the way my mind worked. So I would just be sitting and walking at my own rhythm and then going to see Munindra. Then... It was quite a shift when Goangakaji came, and all of these people came mm-hmm. both because of the crowds and also the much more formal structure, yeah you know of Goanka. but I got very connected to it when he came, and I surrendered to it. Mm-hmm. But there was one funny story with I can't remember Sharon whether Ramdas was there in that first Goanka course or he came later.
4: he was there for my first course.
1: Yeah, so by this time there were a lot of Westerners, maybe a hundred or more Westerners mm-hmm. who were coming for these retreats.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And they converted an old buffalo shed on the grounds of the Vihara to make three little rooms that uh, we could stay in. Mm-hmm. And so it turns out that I was in one end of this buffalo shed in this room, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Ramdas was in the middle, the room right next to me. Mm-hmm. And of course, I had before he came. I had no idea who he was. I, I had never heard of him. Uh,
3: mm-hmm.
1: He was just this guy named Ramdas. <laughs> but I quickly found out that you know he's he had a big following, mm-hmm. and so people would be coming in just all day long. You know, in in between the sittings of the retreat, just talking and chatting away with Ramdas, and I'd be in my room trying to meditate. Uh, <laughs> and here are these new guys, you know, what are they doing? So I'd be pounding on the wall, you know, quiet in there.
3: <laughs>
1: but again, it was another lesson in surrender,
3: mm-hmm.
1: you know, and 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 I ended up becoming really good friends, you know, and mm-hmm. connected in a very deep way. Mm-hmm. But there was this transition yeah. going from the time I had been there before all these people came into the Goenka years, mm-hmm. It was it, it was an interesting time. And I had a very painful lesson, actually, doing the Go Anka retreat. And it was a powerful lesson for me. And that was the first year. I can't remember whether it was the first year of courses or one of the subsequent years. But at a certain point in doing that practice, Sharon described as the body scan, and built on the many years of my practice there, I would just sit and I would be experiencing a body of light. There was no solidity to my body at all. And every time I would sit, it would just open to that space. And it was fantastic. I mean, it was really quite blissful. And I could sit for hours and hours and hours. There was no pain Mm -hmm. at that point. So it was really wonderful. Mm -hmm. Then the course ended. And that was a time when I had to go back to the States Mm -hmm. for some reason, maybe to make some money. I, I don't remember exactly. So I went back to the States, but really couldn't wait to get back to India to get back my body of light. (laughs) But I went back, and for whatever reason, this body of light had become a body of twisted steel. Mm -hmm. And I was sitting, and with this body scan, it was like I was trying to push my mind through all that tension and tightness and contortion energetically. Mm-hmm. in the body, you know, trying to get back
3: mm-hmm.
1: some ex- that experience which I had had. And this lasted for two years. Mm. and they were the worst two years of my practice, the most difficult. And it took me that long to realize that it wasn't about getting something, it was about opening to what was there. Mm-hmm. You know, but I was so attached mm-hmm. to that wonderful experience uh, that it was really subverting the deeper understanding of what meditation really mm-hmm. is, yeah, so it took me such a long time, but finally, you know after two years of struggle, something released or let go, and I mm-hmm. just settled back and opened to whatever was presenting itself. And at that point, then things began to open up a bit and flow more, yeah. uh, you know, and the practice could move on. So even though it was a tremendously difficult and painful time,
3: yeah. it
1: was a huge lesson for me, you know, and has informed my practice ever since.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And Munindriji had he had a great phrase, which I must have heard thousands and thousands of times and it really it really entered into me as as a way of being and he said over and over again in different contexts be simple and easy about things
3: mm.
1: just be simple and easy and of course when we are simple and easy about things our life becomes simple and easy mm-hmm. you know and that learning you know of going through that difficult time I was not being simple and easy. I was mm-hmm. struggling, fighting, wanting something mm-hmm. to happen. And finally, when I could relax you know, and open and become simple and easy, that's when the practice really started to flow again.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I'm going to jump ahead to very recent years.
2: Mm-hmm. Please do.
1: Because a phrase came to mind, which I've been using in teaching, but it really reflects the understanding that came from those years of struggle. Mm-hmm. And the phrase is don't waste your suffering. Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Which means that suffering and difficulty and challenges are just a part of everybody's path. There's nobody who just it's only bliss from beginning to end. That's not that's mm-hmm. not what it's about. I and mean, it's really not about bliss, even though You know, there are some experiences of that. And by don't waste your suffering, it means the suffering itself is an experience of the first noble truth. And Saito Upandita would would often comment when we'd go in for an interview, uh, you know, describing some difficulty, and he would say, oh, good. Now you are experiencing the truth of dukkha, Mm
3: -hmm.
1: you know, of suffering.
3: Mm
1: -hmm. And so those experiences as well as the pleasant ones and perhaps even more so can really become the field for a lot of inquiry and understanding Mm -hmm. you know if there's suffering in the mind to really look and see okay what is going on in the mind that's causing the suffering Mm-hmm. So, in that regard we we don't want to waste our suffering in terms of just drowning in it or being overwhelmed by it, or, mm-hmm. you know feeling sorry for ourselves, whatever it may be. It's really taking taking that uh as a tremendous arena of learning
3: mm-hmm.
1: if we really look and investigate with interest, you know okay, what am I holding on to? what am I wanting? what am I pushing away? We just are exploring that mm-hmm. and that really is part of becoming simple and easy about things, about meditation, about our life. Um, We just create a lot more space for the whole range of experience. So all of that was part of, part of those years as well.
2: Mm -hmm. Well, it's, it's quite something too, that, that lasted so long and that first of all, you didn't just stop or give up. I mean, Uh and that you really stayed with the process. And so, I'm curious, Mm -hmm. kind of close this loop on you and Sharon being at that Goinka retreat in January of 71. Where does that fall in of the timeline of that two
1: years for you? The two years was kind of in the middle Mm -hmm. of that time together. And as Sharon was overcoming her initial difficulties, Mm -hmm. she was going on to be a great yogi. One of the stars of the of the group.
2: Do tell, do tell. Yes,
1: <laughs> yeah, no. She was, she was. Again, she she had to work through that initial, <laughs> initial stuff. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, she was she was really an exceptional yogi, even if there was at different times, you know, a lot of pain or suffering involved. But mm-hmm. uh, her practice had gotten really uh, profound. Mm-hmm. So there was that overlap. I was struggling with my body of twisted steel <laughs> and Sharon was, mm-hmm. uh, uh, yeah, but we became, there, there was a small group of us mm-hmm. who were there over, over several years. You know, we, we would be in okay. Bodh Gaia during the winter, cooler months and then go up to the mountains in the summer months, mm-hmm. you know, in rent cottages. And there was more kind of hanging out and then having periods of self retreat, but nothing organized. There was no teacher up there. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, you were both really witness to each other's yeah. evolution on oh, yeah. so many levels. Yes, yeah,
1: for many years now.
2: <laughs> What's kind of
1: interesting about Sharon and my, you know, path over all these years is that our evolution involved sitting with the same teachers, and that we had different teachers. Mm-hmm. You know, I had started with Menindra, but then I sat with Goenka. And then afterwards, Sharon studied some with Goenka. And then of course, our connection with Deepa Ma, and then Upandita, mm-hmm. and then some of our Tibetan teachers. So we've really shared that kind of evolution of our practice and teachings mm-hmm. over all these years. Yeah. So it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful journey together.
2: Yeah. There's something really beautiful about that. And that there's such a kind of parallel track, but also, you know, you're each such different people, and you know, just hearing that difference of, for example, like Sharon, how much structure you initially needed versus you, Joseph, who really needed a lot of space. 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 I love space. And uh, <laughs> and so I think about you each kind of going through your individual process with different teachers and. And that I imagine you were garnering a lot of different things and working through a lot of different material, but that it was still parallel. Yes. <laughs> it was kind of incredible. Yes. yes. Yeah. I almost want to like go through each teacher <laughs> and, and hear a little bit, but another time, another yeah. time. <laughs> yeah. Well, anything else that either of you want to add in here before we finish?
1: No, but I'm glad we had this conversation because even after all these years, I learned something new about Sharon. What was that? That you wanted to be a playwright. <laughs> I never <laughs> knew that. Well, you'll be invited to opening night. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I hope so. <laughs> uh,
2: Amazing. Well, thank you both, and uh, may it be the the beginning of many fun conversations like this. So, thank you.
1: Yeah. Great. <laughs>